Well, good morning. We are thankful that you are with us this morning. Thankful to all of you who could be here present uh, in the auditorium with us and certainly all those who are able to watch online. We hope that you are doing well, that your family's doing well, and that uh, you're continuing on as a lot of us kind of feel like we just keep pressing along through everything that's going on in the world around us, and we're thankful for this time that we can be together. Uh, Sister Brenda Shipley did call me this morning and wanted to say that son was doing better, some improving some. They were going to start trying to sit him up a little bit. He is still very weak, certainly has a long road ahead, as Gary was saying, but we want to continue to pray for not only son and his medical team, but certainly Miss Brenda as well. We also didn't pass along, but several of you got the email that we've been uh, adding Vicki Smith to our prayer list, as she's been going through several things and uh, with her back and colitis, and so we want to add her to our prayer list as well. Uh, many folks that we could be reaching out to. I told someone the last couple of days that, you know, we made it pretty, pretty good through the first few months without any major uh, illnesses and things beside our brother Van passing away, of course, but uh, now our sick list has kind of been going the wrong direction, so lots of folks that could use our prayers and many ways that we can reach out with uh, letters and cards and visits and calls and those kinds of things. So not visits much anymore, but as much as you can, trying to encourage those of our number who are sick. Uh, Charles reminded me this morning that uh, as of, I guess, about today, uh, that this has been two years that we have been working together now. You can keep your opinions to yourself. That's felt like two years or one year or 20 years. Uh, you can just hold on to those. That's all right. Uh, but it's hard to imagine. Uh, I don't know that any of us would have thought, certainly two years ago, that we would all be uh, wearing masks and doing the things we're doing today. Uh, but we are thankful for this congregation and the opportunity that we can be together. We began a couple of weeks ago, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready. Peter's instructions to those who would hear his writings, read his letters, and almost 2,000 years later to us still today, sanctify. Set apart the Lord God in your hearts. That's something that we should be doing. And always be ready. What we've been focusing on now for at least two weeks, always being ready to give a defense for a reason, for the hope that is within you, with meekness and fear. We've been talking about apologetics for several weeks now and the encouragement that hopefully we can take from those kinds of lessons. I made the joke as several of you were leaving last week. It's kind of interesting and, and almost a little humorous in a way we're preaching a sermon, we're studying the Bible, but yet we didn't use a whole lot of Bible verses last week. We're going to touch on a few today, but still there's not as many because we're thinking uh, maybe in a logical sense. We're taking a little bit more of a different look at some of these things. So yes, the Bible absolutely comes into play, and we're going to get there in just a minute today. But at the same time, there's not so many verses that talk about specific things. When we think about thinking logically or even giving a defense or making an argument logically, when we talk about giving in a defense, we've noticed a two, couple of weeks ago that the word there is apologia or apologia, giving a defense, an answer, not an apology. We're not apologizing for who we are or what we believe. We're not apologizing for God or for Christ, but we're giving a defense. We're giving an answer for why we believe what we believe. A few weeks ago, we said as we began this series of lessons that we're not talking about what we believe. We know some of those things. If you're like me growing up, we could give the list. We believe this, we believe that, we do this, we do that, but why? What's the reason why we do those things? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about a foundation, why we should study apologetics, why we should have these lessons, and then even last week, we talked about the person of Jesus, Jesus the Christ. This morning, we want to take another look at something that falls under the umbrella of apologetics. The story is told of a young man 
who actually lived in Chattanooga for several years. He actually attended the Macaulay School, as the story goes, for a period of time. It was said that this young man was a model student. He led a prayer group, and he even dreamed of being a missionary, perhaps in his future. He was 15 years old when his younger sister, Mary Jean, and she was 12 years old at the time, contracted a rare form of lupus. She suffered from it mightily, greatly. The complications left her with a great uh, trouble to her brain, a lot of brain damage, and very often left her screaming in pain. She died five years later at the young age of 17. No doubt this young man was shaken by this terrible tragedy in his life. But it was only four years later that his father, who was under the influence of alcohol and pills, who had been battling depression, took his own life. And you can try to imagine the grief, first a sister, then a father. You can try to imagine, and maybe you've even been through some of the wrestling, as you might call it, the wrestling with God. In fact, he is quoted, this young man, as later in his life saying, she was sick for five years before she passed away, and it just seemed so unfair because she hadn't done anything wrong. What had she done wrong? And I couldn't get my answers. Christianity couldn't give me any answers to that, so my faith got shaken somewhat. The dreams of being a missionary quickly faded. His belief in God began to go away, and it turned him into one of America's uh, most well-known unbelievers, and actually even in his lifetime, a very well-known pro-abortion activist. You know him better as billionaire Ted Turner. Maybe you'll know as well his past, but maybe you're familiar with that kind of story. And his story with battling doubt is very similar to things that we go through in our lifetime. In fact, last week as we discussed Jesus the Christ, we talked about a well-known British writer by the name of C.S. Lewis. In 1956, Lewis married another writer by the name of Joy Davidman Gresham. Not long after she was diagnosed with terminal bone cancer in her hip, after, not long after they had gotten married. She did go into remission, but of course, as often is the case, the cancer returned, and a few years later, in 1960, she did pass away. One of Lewis's lesser-known books, we talked about a few of the ones he's known for last week, but one of his lesser-known books was After Her Death, and it was entitled A Grief Observed. And in that book, he wrote this, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. Ted Turner, still with us, uh, has lived his life struggling with these questions. C.S. Lewis, as you read his writings, no doubt struggled with those questions, but then was able to turn from them and realize that God does love us even though we suffer. Not to put one of those guys above the other or anyone above any of us, but to help us simply understand that lots of people in this lifetime deal with those questions. Why do bad things happen? Not just to good people, but to people in general. And does that mean that there is no God? Those are questions for all of mankind. And this morning, you would be mistaken, and I would be mistaken as well, if we think that Ted Turner or C.S. Lewis, or you, or any of us, are the only ones to wrestle with such a thought. In fact, it's a biblical consideration. In Judges chapter 6 and verse number 13, we meet the man Gideon. 
And as the children of Israel are being oppressed, they're going through sufferings. They're being oppressed by the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord first appears to Gideon, and we meet him, Gideon, in Judges chapter 6, his very first statement or question is, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about? But that's not the only place, of course. John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. You recall this occasion where Jesus passes a man who was born blind from, or was blind from birth. And what's the question? The question there is by his disciples, no less, who asked Jesus the very simple question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? What's the deal, Jesus? Something must have happened for someone to be suffering. Have you ever felt that way in your life? Have you ever shook your fist at the heavens or at God and asked why? Have you ever known a friend or a family member who was going through that? Why do, what, what do we do with evil in the world? What do we do with the pain that cuts us deep sometimes? What do we do with the suffering that we face when we go through times that we don't enjoy? And the question this morning really is, are those good reasons to not believe that there is a God in heaven? And let's consider those things together this morning. You know that I'm a firm believer in defining our terms so we understand where we are and what we're talking about. And so to define what we are trying to discuss this morning, it's in the title of your bulletin if you've got it there, but it's often referred to as the problem of evil or simply evil, pain, and suffering. So let's first try to understand the argument that is made here, and it often sounds this way. If there is a God, and that God is all-powerful, and by the way, He is. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse number 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. So if there is a God and that God is all powerful, and he is. If there is a God and that God is all loving, and he is. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 very simply says, God is love. He's the very definition of love. We sometimes go to our uh, store or the aisle in the store and look at the Hallmark cards. Or we sometimes watch those romantic comedies or chick flicks to try to understand what love really is. When in reality, the Bible tells us what love is. God is love. He's the very essence of love. And so if there is a God in heaven and he is all powerful and he is all loving and he is those things, but not only that, he is all knowing. And again, from 1 John, John's writings, 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 20. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If there is a God who is all-powerful and all-loving and all-knowing, you're familiar with these phrases. You may have heard them used before or preached on before. We use them as the O-words or the omni-words. God is omnipotent. He is omnibenevolent. He is omniscient. If there is a God who is all-powerful, all-loving, and all-knowing, then why does He allow people to suffer? Then why doesn't He do something about people suffering. And really, when we think about the argument in that way, and since we suffer, 
then there must not be a God. That's the argument that would, people would take. If there's a God who covers those characteristics, then why doesn't he do something about people suffering? I told you before, I, I've never actually, you know, actually sat and debated someone in a formal debate setting. Uh, logical thinking, sometimes those things sound difficult to us. But to try to think about the problem logically, sometimes we think about the negative side of things. People suffer, right? Correct? We know that. We've already had a long list this morning. People suffer. That's a fact we know to be true. So if we take a look at this in a negative sense, in connection with God, if there is a God in heaven then he must not be all-powerful. Or, excuse me, he must not be all-knowing. I think I got my, thing, my notes out of order here. If you, we think about him being all-knowing, maybe he doesn't know about it. Maybe that's one of the problems here. He doesn't know about it. And if he doesn't know about it, then he can't do something. So maybe he's not all-knowing. Maybe that's the, the God that we serve. At the same time, maybe there is a God who is all-powerful, but if he's all-powerful and he doesn't do something, then maybe he's not all-powerful. Maybe he's too weak. Is that the God that we serve? And if he's too weak to do something, then he's not actually all-powerful. And of course, in the third place in this particular argument, maybe he is powerful enough. Maybe he does know, but he simply doesn't care. Is that the God that we serve? He knows and he can do something, but he simply doesn't care. In that case, he is not all-loving. Just as we talked last week about Jesus the Christ and how people will try to attack Jesus, this is one of the arguments that people will use as they try to attack the God of heaven. Now, before we get into our arguments this morning, some consideration for ourselves, one thing that we must say up front, first and foremost, is when it comes to this discussion, we must, absolutely must, Turn to the Bible. Now, let's be clear that the source for our discussion here, as we think about this, it must be the Bible for the source for us as we think about these arguments. And let's again just kind of use some logic here. Let's think about this logically. Where does the idea come from that there is a God who is all-powerful and all-loving? Is it not on the pages of the Bible? What can happen is, if we have this discussion with someone, is that people will say, as we try to turn to the Bible for answers, well, wait a minute, no, you can't do that. You can't turn to the pages of the Bible. But there we have an issue. And the issue is, is the Bible is the one thing that is used to describe this problem. How can we know that God is all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful if we don't turn to the Bible for the source for those answers? If the Bible wasn't the source of knowing that God was all-powerful and all-loving and all-knowing, then this problem doesn't even exist. But yet the Bible is there. It tells us those things. And so we have to turn to the Bible for the answers to this problem. Don't let someone try to turn you around and turn you upside down if you were to try to have this discussion and say, well, no, no, you can't use the Bible. Well, then we don't have a problem because how do you know God is all-powerful and all-loving or at least that he claims to be? Let's have some considerations for ourselves. Number one, actions have consequences. When it comes to this idea of evil, pain, and suffering, one of the things that we must understand is that our actions have consequences. Now, on the surface, this doesn't seem to have anything to do with what we are discussing. All right, This is not the science portion of apologetics. This is not a science lesson. But we must understand, as humans, the way around us, the world around us works and that our actions do have consequences. First of all, in connection with that, let's consider freedom of choice. 
Do we want to be robots? Well, most of us, the answer would be no. We don't want to be robots. Do we want to be able to choose where we drive? Do we want to be able to choose what we eat and what we drink? Then it follows that where we have choice, there will be wrong choices. When it comes to evil, pain, and suffering, we must understand that we want freedom of choice. And we very often will pray to the God of heaven, we are thankful that you have allowed us to choose, fill in the blank with whatever comes next. But if we have freedom of choice, then it naturally follows that sometimes there will be wrong choices. I don't want to be a robot. I want to choose to drive sometimes 70, 75, 80, 85 miles per hour on the interstate. I have that choice. But I also might have an accident if I make that choice. I don't want to be a robot. I might want to choose to have a few drinks, a few beers with my dinner. That's fine. It's my choice. But then I might wreck my car and permanently injure myself and go through some pain and suffering. God gives us the freedom of choice, and we are very thankful for that. But we must also understand that that means that choices must be made, and sometimes we will make poor choices, and sometimes those poor choices will have an end result of pain and suffering. So question is it fair then to blame God for poor, cho poor choices on my part? We begin to have a little bit of a discussion then, a little bit of a problem with our argument. Number two, though, when it comes to the fact that our actions have consequences, is the idea of natural law. In Job chapter 38, God reminds Job of just how powerful he is. We quoted from Jeremiah a few moments ago, but Job chapter 38 we are thankful that that God is still powerful today. He laid the foundations of the earth. He laid its cornerstones. He shut in the sea. He commands the mornings. I don't know about you, but when it comes to natural law, I'm thankful for gravity. I'm thankful that I'm not trying to preach this morning while floating in the air, although that might make for some neat illustrations. That's not what we're talking about. I'm thankful that I don't have to worry about floating in the air and trying to preach to you because I'm thankful for gravity. I'm thankful for speed. I'm thankful for inventions. Things like trains that allow us to move goods and sometimes to move people at faster limits than we might if we had to put them on the back of a horse or a buggy and try to move them across the country to someone who needed something. God's natural laws, gravity, speed, among many other things that we study sometimes in the scientific realm. But, but you and I must also understand that if a person either jumps or of his own free will, or even accidentally falls off the top of a tall building, something like the Empire State Building, and gravity takes over, that that very same thing that we were just thankful for a few moments ago will also cause pain and suffering. If a car, or even a child, happens to wander across some train tracks at the wrong moment, and speed is working, that very same thing that we were thankful for just a few moments ago will also cause pain and suffering. And while those are tragic situations, understand that natural laws are there so that we can study them. We can know them and we can benefit from them actually most of the time if we know them and learn to obey them. It sounds crazy, but it would, would it not be much worse if we didn't know if gravity was going to work from each moment to the next? It's kind of funny to think about maybe us hopping up and down in the air and not understanding gravity. We're thankful that it exists, that we can study it and know how it works even enough to send a person to outer space and understand how gravity works. We can be thankful for that. 
To understand some of the pain and suffering in the world, we must understand that our actions have consequences. I still remember pretty vividly the first time I ever touched a hot iron in my house. God didn't cause that pain. I had freedom of choice. And God's natural law of heat and the benefit of heat were working. But I still remember from that day, not only natural law, but the freedom of choice and that my actions have consequences. And sometimes my actions will cause evil, pain, and suffering. Number two, when we think about pain and suffering, we must understand that pain and suffering have value. As much as we don't like to admit it, pain and suffering in our lives can sometimes be beneficial to us. Look, we understand that pain has different levels. My pain from touching the hot iron didn't hurt as deep or last as long as the pain of a parent who loses a child to cancer. But there are earthly examples of this. Pain and suffering being of value. You ever heard the phrase, no pain, no gain? The mantra of many of our athletes. You want to be ready for the fourth quarter? You want to be ready for the Super Bowl after a long season of games and injuries? You have to suffer some in training. We're thankful for our military and even those who suffer or serve, excuse me, and suffer on the special operations sides of things, who face some of the most difficult missions, many of those missions we never have even heard about. I'm fascinated sometimes to learn about those men and women who go through those trainings and that special operations side of things. Perhaps you're familiar with the BUDS training, the basic underwater demolition SEAL training that the Navy SEALs go through. You may have heard it on TV or seen the uh, renditions of that as they film that from time to time. The second week or so of that is called Hell Week because of all that they go through, the suffering, the deprivation, the pain that they go through during that particular training in order to be a person who is ready to serve on the special operations side of our military. I think if you were to ask any of those men and women, not a one of them would turn their back on that training in the end because they know that through that suffering, they are then prepared. Never wants to have to second-guess themselves in the field of battle because they know they've been through that suffering. And anything they're going through in that moment, and whatever, whatever regards, regards it may be, when they're on the field of battle or even being captured or being tortured, they know they can handle it because they've been through suffering before. That suffering makes them able to do their job through extremely difficult situations. Pain and suffering have value. But not only in an earthly sense, we might even say secondly, uh, it helps us to learn who we are. In a similar sense to our athletes or our special, uh, special operations people, we sometimes can go through a tragedy and we learn just how strong we are. We learn what we can handle or how far we will go to protect our family or our own life. Some people say, I could never lose a spouse. I, I could never lose a child. There's no way I could go on living. But yet you go through that and you realize that you can make it through that. You realize just how strong you are. Someone says, I could never walk 10 miles in the freezing cold with no food or water to try to get for something to something if I had a car accident. Yet when you are 10 miles from civilization in the freezing cold trying to survive, you learn what you can go through. The pain and suffering of trying to get there can have value because you realize just how strong you really are. And sometimes pain can help us. But even in a third sense, under this idea of value provided by suffering, isn't it amazing what we can do for others when we suffer? One value of suffering is that we can truly empathize 
with others. The Bible, of course, bears that out. First, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. God who comforts us in all of our tribulation, that we, being comforted by God in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort others. Through our tribulation, with the help of God, we ourselves can comfort others who are going through those tribulations through which we are comforted by God. If suffering can prove valuable to us, then the presence of suffering does not argue against the existence of God. i say it again because it's one of the main arguments. If suffering can provide value, then the, the presence of suffering does not argue against the existence of God. But then thirdly this morning, we would notice that God is not a hypocrite. When pre- people try to use bad things happening as a justification to say that God doesn't exist, the truth is, no one, no one can justifiably say suffering is contrary to the existence of God in light of what happened at Calvary almost 2,000 years ago. Nobody can say that suffering doesn't exist in light of what God was willing to go through. Gabe put it in such good words for us to think about as we partook of the Lord's Supper. The Word of God describes the Son of God as a man acquainted with sorrows, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus the Christ knows what it was to suffer, to suffer pain and agony, injury, insult, rejection, and death. And His death teaches us that suffering is not always punishment for our sins. Go back to John chapter 9 where we started and think about it again. His suffering, the suffering of the Son of God, His death teaches us that suffering is not always punishment for our sins. For we know that He was sinless. But God's love is shown toward us in the sacrifice of His Son. The fact is is that even the Son of God was subjected to terrible, awful, evil pain and suffering. And it shows us that God does love and care for His creation. God could have left us to die. He could have left us to simply suffer and die. But we know in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8 that God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The God of the Bible is the God of the cross. God does care. He cared enough to send His only begotten Son. He's not a hypocrite. Two men who are inextricably linked together. One was set down a road to unbelief from which he would never turn back. In April of 1851, At the tender age of 10, his oldest daughter, Annie, fell ill and died. Even though his wife was a devout believer in God and Christianity, Charles Darwin was irreversibly affected and could no longer stomach the concept of God. The rest of his life after the death of his daughter is well-known history, and it still affects us to this day. Nine years after that, in 1860, the second man held his four-year-old son, Noel, in his arms and watched him die from scarlet fever. Thomas Huxley would become known as Darwin's bulldog for his adamant advocacy of Darwin's theory of evolution. And he too was pushed to the edge of a breakdown, throwing himself into science and nature. Any small bit of him that still believed in God was gone completely after that terrible loss. Two men, two sad states of unbelief, wrestling with God, so to speak, and with these difficult questions, and in their cases, deciding that there must be no God because of this terrible pain and suffering. 
If you would, set your Bibles aside for a moment and, and get out your songbook if you choose to use one. We're about to extend the Lord's invitation, but here's the thing about evil, pain, and suffering. I'll leave you with this final thought. When we really think about evil, pain, and suffering, here's the thing. We didn't mention one value a few minutes ago. Pain and suffering in this life can keep us from becoming too attached to this old earthly world of sin and death. This is where it gets a little hard for all of us, doesn't it? Don't you want to go to heaven? Don't you want to go to a place where there is no more pain and suffering? No more tears? No more crying? Some people sing, this world is not my home, but they don't mean it because they're too happy here upon this earth. They don't long for that place called heaven. And when we think about the evil, pain, and suffering that we sometimes go through, some people are too happy here. They don't want to go to heaven. Evil, pain, and suffering does not tell us that there is no God or that He isn't all-knowing, all-powerful, or all-loving. Evil, pain, and suffering remind us that He is there and that He cares and that He has made a home so great and wonderful that we should do all in our power to be sure that we can be there with Him. That's really what it's about. And I can't sit here and tell you this morning that it doesn't hurt, that it's not easy, that it's not fun, I don't want you to have to go through those things, but I can remind you that when we do go through those things, that there is a God that loves us. Those things are there because of our free choice, because of our natural law that we abide by here upon this earth, and they remind us of that home that is waiting for us in heaven. But as we think about that, we can't get there if we don't believe in God. If we don't believe in Christ, we're not willing to become gospel. If we conclude our lesson, that's really the thought. That's really what it comes down to, is when you go through evil, pain, and suffering, when you struggle with these things, are you willing to put your hope in God? Are you ready to give a defense, an answer for the reason that is within you, with meekness and in fear? Because if you are, then you're on the right track. And even though evil, pain, and suffering will come, you can know that you have a home in heaven, because God has made promises, and we're thankful for those promises. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, you've never been baptized for the remission of your sins, we'll be singing to encourage you. It's why we're here together. It's one of the great feelings in all the world to know that you don't have to carry around that weight of sin and death, of suffering, because God has made a way. He sent His Son. This morning you can be baptized for the remission of your sins and be added to the church and begin to live faithfully. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but through evil pain and suffering, through the worries and cares of this life, you've turned your back on God. Maybe there's a sin in your life that is of a public nature. You need to respond in a public fashion. We would gladly pray with you and for you. It's one of the great blessings as well of being a Christian. Not just that you know you're right with God, and first and foremost that you have a home in heaven, but that you have a family, a body of believers that care enough for you to pray with you and for you. Evil pain and suffering don't have to get us down. They don't have to wear us out. They don't have to cause us to doubt. They can strengthen us. They can provide value and benefit if we will turn to God. And maybe this morning you need to turn to Him for the first time or turn back to Him. We'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.